Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Primary source readers represent an unusual historical genre. Unlike editions, their aim is not to enable the reader to hear as clearly as possible, or as completely as possible, the voice of a single historical personage or institution. Nor are they purely interpretive works in which the author's voice is foregrounded, such as a monograph. In this conversation... Primary source readers represent an unusual historical genre. Unlike editions, their aim is not to enable the reader to hear as clearly as possible, or as completely as possible, the voice of a single historical personage or institution. Nor are they purely interpretive works in which the author's voice is foregrounded, such as a monograph. In this conversation with Princeton University historian Anson Robbenbach, we learn what methodological, but also what moral challenges faced him and co-editor Sandra Gilman in crafting the Third Reich sourcebook which appeared in 2013 with the University of California Press. In this interview, we learn how they selected and how they decided to preface the voices of Nazi ideologues, politicians, fellow travelers, and their victims. With 411 primary documents that take the reader systematically through the key cultural fields and criminal activities of the regime, the sourcebook represents a major engagement by two leading intellectual historians with the Nazi worldview. They found this worldview less uniform and internally consistent than others have surmised. Beyond the exaltation of the German folk and the demonization of Jewry, much was up for grabs, including the epistemological framework meant to ground these core concepts. In this interview, Robinbach paints a picture of German intellectual life under the Third Reich that was contradictory and complex yet above all, impoverished. Hello, and welcome to another podcast with New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Todd Weir. Today, it's my pleasure to speak to Anson Robbenbach, who is a historian of, at Princeton University in New Jersey. And together with Sander Gilman, he has recently edited the Third Reich Sourcebook. Uh, for those listeners uh, who happen to be familiar with the Weimar Sourcebook from the same press, um, University of California Press. Um, this is a uh, this is an equally impressive uh, work of scholarship. Uh, I've counted there are 411 documents, mm-hmm. primary sources, uh, and there are uh, I think 21 sections, each with its own introduction. So it's a very important book, uh, both for German history but also for intellectual history. And I'm I'm sure it's a book that uh, that uh, we're going to use to teach uh, German history. Uh, uh, for many years, and uh, students are certainly going to go to it uh, for material. So, uh, Anson, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, uh, you're you're a, a very eminent uh, intellectual historian. Uh, you've worked on Weimar. You've worked on post-war uh, history. You've you've certainly written some essays, I think, on on the Nazi period. That's um, right. But this this I assume is your most substantial work on the Third Reich to date. Is that correct? Well, that's correct. I did uh, publish in uh, 1976, actually, uh, an article called The Aesthetics of Production in the Third Reich, which was actually planned to be a book on uh, the uh, beauty of labor, which was the uh, uh, organization devoted to modernizing and uh, improving factories and factory labor in the Third Reich. And I did a lot of research for that, uh, but it ended up as being part of another book, which was called The Human Motor, which came out in the 1990s. So uh, The Human Motor, uh, as you just suggested, uh, was, a, was a project that led you into um, some of the questions that probably um, were of interest in this book. Uh, can, you, can you say a bit more about uh, uh, what led you in the more recent years, I suppose, to... Uh, uh, to this particular project? 
Well, after I published The Human Motor, I began a project on the humanities in the Third Reich, on universities, academics, and intellectuals, which actually was published as a book called Nazi Germany and the Humanities, which I uh, edited with Wolfgang Bialas. And it was based on a number of uh, conferences that we organized, actually two, three conferences that we organized on the subject. So we, I'd been working on the humanities, universities, intellectuals, academics, uh, for some time before I uh, conceived of the idea of publishing a, a source book, a comprehensive source book about Nazi Germany. I felt that a source book of this kind was not only necessary, but had really never been attempted before. There were, there are, of course, source books, and we can talk about those, but uh, a comprehensive one like the uh, Third Reich source book had never been uh, attempted, and I spoke to the people at the University of California Press, especially Ed Dimenberg and Marty J., Martin J., uh, and we thought that it fit well with the Weimar Sourcebook. It was a sort of natural end, so to speak, to the sourcebook collections of the uh, University of California Press. A question about the uh, this the source book as a particular genre of, of historical inquiry. Um, I mean, it's quite different, obviously, from an edited uh edition of, of, of a philosopher's work or of an institutional history um, and at the same time obviously it's not a it's not a monograph but it lies somewhere in between it's 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 very time bound in in the fact that there's an editor who puts it together with his or her, her particular interests um, and so on um, for that reason I, I was curious if you could maybe say something about uh, uh, how you maybe viewed past source books. I'm thinking, for instance, of uh, George Moss's collection from the 60s on, on Nazi Germany. Um, there's a more recent one by Richard Brightman um, with the German Historical Institute in Washington on their website. Um, how you were just beginning to say about what this what, what makes this different, but could you say something about then... Um, the, how, how this particular work is different from, say, those other ones? Well, let me say first that I was a student of George Mossy. I studied with George Mossy in the 1960s and 1970s. And at that time, he had just made the transition from being a historian of the Renaissance and Reformation period to the modern period. And his book, Nazi Culture, which was the first collection of documents of this kind, appeared in 1964, and it was really a pioneering work. It was the first book to treat the Nazi period as having a distinctive culture and ideology. Before that, it was almost assumed that Nazi culture was kind of an oxymoron, that there was no such thing as Nazi culture and no such thing as Nazi aesthetics, art, literature, film, that these things, that Nazism was opposed to those things, was the destruction of culture rather than having its own distinctive culture. Um, and Mossy's book uh, was very influential. It's still in print, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has, it, it, it is, I think, um, seriously dated. For example, there's nothing about the Holocaust, nothing about the destruction of European Jewry in the book at all, which seems to me to be a great lacuna. But if you think back to the 1960s, it was the time when uh, Ralph Hilberg was publishing his destruction of European Jewry, and um, there was nothing, uh, there wasn't a, uh, the degree of intellectual and scholarly work on the, on, on that period that we have today. So the book is, is, is certainly dated. It's a little weak, I think, in its conceptualization, and there are a number of of, of factual errors in the book. I mean, every book has factual errors, but some of the some of the documents are misidentified, and so on and so forth. By the way, I should add parenthetically that I I asked George Mossy, who was a close friend of mine, uh, if he wouldn't like to be the third editor hmm. of the Third Reich source book and to contribute he contribute not only his vast knowledge of the subject but also some of the documents from from Nazi culture, from his original Nazi culture for our book. Mm-hmm. But he declined. He was getting on in years, and he didn't want to do another project of that magnitude. Sure. Uh, let me say something about some of the other uh, document collections. There are uh, a number. You mentioned Richard Brightman's. There's the German Historical Institute website. 
I find that particularly wanting, that website. It has something like uh, 100 documents, which is a very small number of documents. And also there's very little about culture, very little about cinema, very little about radio, very little about popular culture in general, and almost nothing about the history of the body, sexuality, things that we focus on in our source book don't exist on the German Historical Institute's website. It's a very conservative, I don't mean politically, but in terms of methodology, a very conservative selection of documents. There are also um, several older compilations. Jeremy Noakes and uh, Jeffrey Pridham published a four-volume collection of documents in the 1970s and 80s, But uh, that uh, collection, it seems to me, is narrowly focused on social history and also has uh, really has no substantial introductions to the sections. Let me add finally that the best online compilation of documents, to my mind, is the Nazi Propaganda Archive uh, of Calvin College. Uh, It's organized by a scholar called Randall Bitework. Mm -hmm. And... uh, he has a fantastic collection of uh, documents, texts, also images, very, very good on posters, very, very good on advertising, all sorts of things. There's not much interpretation, but there's some. And I should add that uh, uh, he was very cooperative in, our, in working with us on our book, and we did use some of his translations for our, for our book. Good. Um, the... Um you know, I was mentioning before we began the interview uh, that when I received this book, I was very excited uh, when I had it in the package and and uh, and so on. And then uh, my my point of reference in the excitement was really the Weimar source book, uh, which which has these fantastic sources from you know the the many of the philosophical uh, you know inspirations, I suppose, of the. Uh, of the 20th century, uh, sure. as, as well as, uh, you know, of course, many Nazi texts from the 20s and 30s. Uh, and then when I opened, when I opened uh, this book, I uh, immediately see the, the red, white, and black, you know, the color of the, of the uh, Prussian flag, the Nazi flag, um, and then this large Third Reich emblazoned on the front end. And I, I started to feel a little bit of anxiety about it. Um, and then, um, you know, in a sense, I started to feel really the burden, I suppose, of these sources before I even opened the book. And then in your introduction, which I think is quite important to talk about, uh, you, you go into this, this, uh, you know, perhaps what was producing the feelings of foreboding, but you, you, you compare the Nazi period to the Weimar period and the Weimar source book to this source book. Um, I thought that was very interesting. Perhaps you could say something about that to open up for the readers a bit of, you know, what your intention was as an editor. Well, the the thing that links uh, our book to the Weimar source book, apart from the chronological connection, is that the Weimar source book was meant to be a kind of comprehensive picture of that of that era, and to document to a large extent the richness of the period. It contains countless documents by the philosophical, artistic, literary, musical greats of the Weimar. Era. I mean, think of Adorno, Brecht, Krakauer. I mean, these are the kinds of figures one finds. So there's a kind of, uh, certainly a kind of richness, a kind of uh, uh, canonical uh, and, and legacy of Weimar that's presented by the Weimar source book. By contrast, the Nazi era is uh, about the impoverishment of culture. It's far more monochromatic. And uh, there are very few exceptions to that. I tried to uh, include whatever exceptions to the um, this monochrome. The problem was to deal with the monochromatic uh, character of this era and to find ways of presenting the Nazi era so that the texts themselves, although they might be boring and superficial and ideologically wretched, uh, also uh, provide a certain kind of uh, tension, a certain kind of interest uh, that uh, one doesn't have to work to achieve in the Weimar source book. For example, uh, one of the few intellectuals of real of real note and real substance who made common cause with the Nazis, and there were many, I mean, one thinks of Heidegger and Schmidt, but uh, I'm thinking specifically of Gottfried Benn, 
the writer who for a brief time embraced the new order and the new era, as he called it, uh, was in conversation with, uh, wrote letters to uh, Klaus Mann, Thomas Mann's son, who was already in exile in 1934. And uh, we included that correspondence. And I think that's one of the best illustrations that we have of the tension between the Weimar era and the Nazi era in, the, in, that, in that encounter. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was really struck by the, the in the introduction where you you very directly addressed this the problem of the poverty of the culture of the Weimar era, um, and and you Nazi, oh, sorry of the Nazi era, and you stated right. that really your your core undertaking um, was to reveal how narrow and parochial the, con- the intellectual concerns were of that particular era, um, and then you also had another lovely quote, which was that your your translations even. Uh, had to, quote, capture the surface dullness of Nazi language while revealing the inner tensions of this shifting ideological morass. Um, so very biting commentaries uh, and very strong statements, editorial statements, in the, right in the beginning about, uh, you know, how you approach these these sources and, and the, the entire project of an, you know, of a intellectual history of the of the Nazi era, um, can, can you you started to say something about the tensions between the, the you know in this case the Gottfried Ben and the Klaus Mann? Um, I, I'm just curious about how this undertaking of attempting to show both the poverty of the culture but also some of the tensions, how it worked itself out in the choice of texts. Uh, you know, did you did you exclude things that you thought would be uh, uh, you know, uh, d- could lead to some sense of, of real intellectual potential, or uh, what? What were the? What was the aim in the ch- in the choice of the of the sources? Well, we had a kind of a template, a kind of a theory of national socialism and of the Third Reich, which we wanted to try to um, argue, so to speak, through the text. That, that I should say, first of all. Of course, there are some texts which had to appear. You had to have uh, selections from Mein Kampf. You had to have selections from Goebbels' uh, uh, 1943 uh, Berlin speech, the so-called Sportpalast speech. There are certain things that were just in, inevitable that had to occur. But, for example, taking the Goebbels' speech for a moment, we not only included selections from the Goebbels speech, but we also included responses to the speech, women's responses to the speech, Thomas Mann's responses to the speech. So we tried to put the speech in context, put the speech in action, so to speak. And that brings me to the sort of larger theoretical frame. The way we looked at it, and I think I think this was our our thesis, if there's such a such a thing in the book, is that there National Socialism, the the culture of the Third Reich, had, so to speak, two or three dimensions. Um, And the dimensions that we focused on were, first of all, what we thought of as the sublime National Socialism, and I put that in sort of ironic quotation marks, that is academic National Socialism, the work of Carl Schmitt, Alfred Bäumler, and also, at the same time, uh, there was a kind of vulgar, popular, pedestrian national socialism, uh, the sort of everyday, what you might call uh, tavern national socialism. And we wanted to try to find texts that illustrated both of those things. So that was one point. And the, and the way we did that was by including chapters on the political religion of national socialism, that is, the famous Nuremberg rallies, the approved art of, uh, of uh, Arno Breker and Torak, uh, the kind of Wagnerian synthesis of Christianity and, uh, and uh, pseudo-Greek or pseudo-Hellenic culture. And that includes things like racial biology, marriage requirements. That all, was all part of this sort of sacred... Uh, in the, in an anthropological sense, national socialism. At the same time, we wanted to have, as I said, profane, vernacular, national socialism, body culture, gymnastics, psychology, fashion, travel, 
uh, even uh, uh, popular films, unpolitical films like uh, this uh, uh, fil- film that was very popular uh, called Lucky Kids that came out of the Goebbels Film uh, Studios, Goebbels Film Factory, which we, we would call today a rom-com about three uh, happy-go-lucky uh, German uh, young people who end up in Manhattan. Uh-huh. I think this combination of uh, a kind of sacred culture of National Socialism, a high culture of National Socialism, an intellectual culture of National Socialism, and a popular culture of National Socialism was the sort of overriding theme to present both of those things together. Um, and also to uh, emphasize the degree to which even the most um, uh, banal things, the most uh, uh, conventional things that we would associate with Nazism, for example, the definition of race, was really an open matter in the Third Reich. That there, was no cons- there was a consensus that race was the center of Nazi ideology, but there was no consensus about what race actually meant and how it was defined. And in fact, the most important thing was not that these things were defined and discussed, uh, not that these things were defined, but that they were discussed, not decided on, but that there was discussion about what race meant. And that, I think, is something else we try to emphasize. That's a very interesting point. I was just at a conference recently where um, Mark Roosman was talking about his a book that he's putting together with um, Richard Wetzel on uh, Beyond the Racial State, they want to call it. Uh, and they're, you know, they're, they're arguing against that notion from uh, Michael Burley and uh, Vipperman about the, the racial science really being the foundation of the, of the ideology and the motivation of the regime. Um, so just I wanted to continue along with the question of the, the folk, the race, um, and, and if you could s- discuss perhaps how what you discovered here and what you've been telling us really, uh, how it either, you know, would it would would jive with with what uh, Roseman um, has been talking about is as tra- need to get a, get away from this notion of racial science being the be and end all of the Nazi ideology. Well, there was uh, of course racial science, but racial science never became the dominant ideology of the regime. I think they're right about that. There was also a kind of racial mysticism, a racial. Uh, a ra- racial doctrine that was unscientific, in fact, anti-scientific, like uh, Arthur Rosenberg. And to some extent, uh, one finds it in, in, in other unusual places. For example, uh, one of the texts that we emphasized was a text by Otto Hoefler, which uh, was uh, focused on the ancient German race. It was a kind of anthropological text. And his argument was that the ancient Germans were, he coined the word berserkers, kind of crazed. He took the term berserkers from bearskins. And uh, that they were uh, also uh, 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 intoxicated, that they used various kinds of drugs and other potions to increase their sense of fanaticism and frenzy. And this was very badly received. Uh, in the Third Reich. Uh, his book was very badly received because it made Germans seem less than respectable, less than uh, upright and moral. And they, he was severely criticized in the official journals for having published this book and for having made these arguments. So we tried to take show both sides of that controversy with the point that these things were constantly being discussed but never decided. But uh, at the same time, when, when I assume we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, I, I assume that the, that the term folk is absolutely central and was never up for discussion. It's just a question of what folk meant. That's right. right. That's right. Just like anti-Semitism was, was ubiquitous and, and, and in, in essence never up for discussion, although there were debates about anti-Semitism as well. 
There were debates about who the Jews were and what constituted a legal definition of the Jews. So we included all that as well. In other, in other words, there was no, I think the main point, and I think this is really uh, a point that we make throughout the book, is that it was not ideology per se that welded together the Third Reich. It was the way that ideology was enacted that was important. In other words, you didn't really have to be uh, a national socialist in the sense that you adopted a coherent ideological position to be acceptable within the framework of the Nazi elite or within within Nazi society, you had to simply adopt uh, what the Germans call a Gesinnung, uh, an, an, an ethos or, or, a, or a, a standpoint. That, and that relates directly how different strands of German culture and ideology could be easily adopted and uh, made acceptable and coordinated. Uh, into the mentality of the regime. In that sense, this enactment point is very is is crucial because you have these events, and this is another thing we stress in the book. You you have these events in which large groups of people enact their allegiance to the national socialist state and to its precepts without saying precisely what that meant. For example, there is the vow of allegiance of the uh, academic community. Uh, in Leipzig to the uh, to the regime in which Heidegger participated, a number of other important intellectuals, the art historian Pinder participated, and this enactment of allegiance was more important than the substance of allegiance, and we tried to emphasize that. And that's, by the way, the context in which we placed Heidegger in the book, rather than as a um, as the rector of the university. But but did you find that uh, that for those close to Hitler or, or thought they were close to Hitler, wasn't there a more coherent concept of Weltanschauung, of worldview? I mean, it's not merely a Gesinnung. It also has a specific systematicity to it, uh, maybe loose, but but I I sometimes wonder if, um, you know, many people say Hitler's worldview is uh, uh, illogical and, um, you know, changed depending on the situation. Um, but I tend to see a consistency um, in terms of, of basic structures of, of worldview um, within certainly Hitler's writing, but um, you know, among leading Nazi figures. Um, well, it's certainly true that Hitler's worldview and Hitler's uh, and Mein Kampf specifically were considered to be the sort of you know the the great central text of the regime. But what's interesting is about about that is it was very rarely quoted. And when it was when Hitler was quoted, it was generally his speeches that were quoted. He was at one point asked if he, um, if he would permit uh, an anthologized version of Mein Kampf to appear, a sort of pamphlet or a shorter version to appear, and he rejected the idea. Hmm. Um, so that there never was a kind of I, I think the word canonical is the right word. There was never a canonical. A statement of what the worldview was. If you try to find a book called The National Socialist Worldview, published during the Third Reich, it would be very difficult to find such a book. And there may be one or two examples of that, but the, these efforts to systematize the folkish ideology or the National Socialist Worldview never came to anything. And that's why there was a great deal of competition among intellectuals to systematize or to try to systematize the Nazi worldview. Boimler, Heidegger, all tried, and Skriek, all tried to systematize the worldview at various points, but none of those systematizations ever took. For example, if you take, for exa if you take uh, central figures who were close to Hitler, as you say, like Alfred Rosenberg or Martin Bormann, they have completely diametrical positions on Christianity. Rosenberg was a pagan. He basically rejected Christianity. He was anti-Catholic. In fact, so anti-Catholic that at one point the regime had to repudiate him in order to make, uh, in order to solidify the Concordat, the treaty with the Vatican in 1933. Rosenberg had to be sidelined because of his anti-Catholicism. And by the way, they also permitted, the regime also permitted anti-Rosenberg Catholic pamphlets to be published during the Third Reich. 
Bormann, for on the other hand, was Bormann on the other hand was also anti-Christian, uh, much closer to Hitler, but never published his anti-Christian writings. So those are examples of how the worldview existed in a sort of tacit way, but never really could become explicit or universally adopted in a doctrinal sort of way. That's why we called our chapter on ideology between myth and doctrine, because the mythology never really became a full-fledged doctrine. Mm -hmm. Also, I should add, if you take a figure like Nietzsche, for example, there are enormous debates on Nietzsche, pro-Nietzsche, anti-Nietzsche, national socialists. There are... uh, uh, even on, in, in modern art, it's often thought that, uh, the, the, that the degenerate art exhibition of 1937 um, solidified the regime's uh, opposition to modern art. And it certainly did do that. But before 1937, there were very important examples of pro-modern art national socialists. Goebbels himself was one of them and promoted some expressionist painters before 1937, and even hosted, Goebbels even hosted the visit of the futurist uh, Filippo uh, Marinetti to Berlin, where Marinetti gave a, a series of lectures. The, um, yeah, I was, I was interested to uh, uh, hear in the, is it Creek, uh, the, the one philosopher right. uh, that you had cited there, um, right. this discussions about um, Ernst Haeckel, because uh, I, I'm, have a particular interest in Hans Heckel. Um, and, uh, you know, some people, uh, certainly Daniel Gassman, uh, some years ago argued that uh, Heckel's evolutionary worldview uh, was quite important uh, for founding the Nazi worldview. And, I mean, certainly terms like uh, unwertes Leben or Leben unwertes Leben, I think, originate with, right. with Heckel. Um, but it right. was interesting to me to see somebody like Creek say that we finally overcome this, this Heckelian biology in, in, in defining the folk and defining philosophy. So it, it was interesting that, uh, you know, it, it is such an open um, topic, uh, folk. Um, Again, and- discussed but never decided. I think that's the right way of putting it. Yeah. And I suppose even with Galen, where, where he says that the, the, the emergence of the concept of folk has provided the new framework for German philosophy. I mean, there's, there's even that... Uh, uh, Potential to to uh, accept, I suppose, uh, um, irrationality within um, w- within the philosophy, um, just to, just by saying it, it's the important thing is it's it's emanating from the folk, and that that can be then left to, to be decided what that is. Um, so, I wanted to um, ask uh, something uh, since we're talking about these these core doctrines and so on. Um, the, you know, the, the sort of antinomy to folk is the Jew, right? The Jewry. Right. Um, and I, I think at some point you you say that, that uh, anti-Semitism is the core doctrine. Yes, we do. Um, of Nazism. Um, could you just say a bit more about that? Uh, well, even there, if you think about it, there are different kinds of anti-Semitism and different enactments of anti-Semitism and different ways that anti-Semitism is adopted. For example, using that framework of the sublime, sacred national socialism, um, the SS adopted a very, uh, as is well known, a very strict definition of the Jew as the enemy, the Jewish enemy of the folk. And uh, and the SS view was that the Jews not only represented uh, a race that had to be eliminated from Germany, but a race that had to be eliminated from the face of the earth. And this is not universal, uh, universally found uh, in in all Nazi uh, variants of anti-Semitism. You have what you might call a much more pedestrian, prosaic national socialism, uh, anti-Semitism uh, in the Third Reich, for example, uh, Jews being uh, refused admission to swimming pools, uh, Jews being uh, refused, uh, not being permitted to uh, sit on park benches, uh, Jews uh, uh, not being permitted to own pets. Uh, these kinds of uh, elim- eliminationist laws, you might call them, are uh, of a different magnitude 
of the SS racial theory and SS anti-Semitism. So we tried to present also different versions of uh, different versions of that uh, of, of of that as well of, of anti-Semitism having different uh, characteristics and not being just one kind of anti-Semitism. And so the. Um you know, again, just to bring up this whole question of the uh, the ir- irrationality or the or the, uh, um, the you know the complexity of Nazi ideology, the the opportunism of Nazi ideology. It seems that with the concepts of folk and the Jew, there's there uh, there's not too much uh, variance. I mean, in other words, uh, sure they're opportunistic when they when they roll it out, but it seems that you're arguing that it's a it's a it's absolutely core. Uh, Absolutely, that's right. And the folk community is 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 a is a central concept that is is universal to Nazi ideology. But as you you rightly say, the use the way these things were instrumentalized was opportunistic and often uh, at variance with each other. And I think that's very important. Also, by the way, there's one thing I. Can I, we come back to the uh, question of how we chose texts? Yes, yes. Because there's something I wanted to say, which I forgot. We chose texts uh, also because of the way they revealed or made transparent how politics and ideology were staged. What I mean by that is that we emphasized the choreography of certain events how these events were not only received, but how they were disseminated, how they were mounted. Uh, I'll give you an example. One of the most unusual texts that we have, uh, a text that I, I've never seen, I, I'm almost certain was never published elsewhere, is a text by the mayor of Nuremberg discussing how the Nuremberg rallies were staged, were were how they were mounted, how they were funded, and what it meant for the city to have millions of people descend on it uh, and one, annually for one event in the year, what it did to the character of the city of Nuremberg. It's certainly not an anti-Nazi document, but it reveals something about the way the Nuremberg rallies were uh, mounted that uh, other uh, documents don't reveal. We also do something, uh, we have a section on the discussion of the importance of the swastika, how the swastika was disseminated, not just as a, as a symbol, but also as a, as, a, as a text, the textual basis of the swastika. We do a lot with holidays, with rituals, with posters, um, posters being very important in the um, iconography of the Third Reich. So... A lot of what we we do is to oh, we have a lot of material on how speakers were trained uh, for meetings, how propaganda tours were organized, and also we have some examples, sort of humorous examples of how these things could misfire. For example, we have one text which talks about how Robert Lai, who was the head of the Labor Front, delivered a speech about alcohol abuse while being visibly intoxicated. Mm-hmm. I, I saw that. Um, when, you know, thinking about uh, the, the, your, your teacher, George Moss's collection from the 60s, uh, there were many texts in there that I suppose, uh, um, I don't know how to put it exactly, they almost invited the reader in. Like there's, the, the, there's that text, very interesting text, The Essay Man's Bride by Gudrun Streiter, which I use with my students. But it, it sort of suggests the... Uh, Hi. Do you hear me? I know I lost you there. Okay, I, I'm sorry. I was I was referring to uh, the type of text that uh, George Moss had chose. Uh, some of those texts I remember invited the reader really into, uh, let's say, uh, participate perhaps in the what it was that people found so fascinating with the Nazi ideology. There's that there's a text that the Essay Man's Bride. I don't know if you remember that. Right. One. Yes, of course. Um, and, and it seemed that with your your choice of texts that you maybe. We're not doing that, uh, inviting the readers in to, uh, let's say, experience the, you know, the thrill of the Nazi movement. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, a fair characterization. Well, 
We have we do have a few texts that do that, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't our central focus. That's right. I mean, we have some things about, um, uh, for example, youth uh, youth meetings, uh, what it was like to be uh, a, a member of the Hitler Youth. We do have some of that. The um, the reason I brought it up is I wanted to, to address something else, which was the um, you know in the, the introductions are, are I think excellent for for the readers to uh, you know really familiarize themselves with some both historiographical debates, but also uh, helping them to approach the particular um, texts that you offer. But there's there's a I, I think there's a very strong tone of um, of uh, not necessarily warning, um, but you seem to be anxious, uh, eager to make sure that the readers are, are not falling for these texts. If I can put it that way, I'm thinking about, you know, again, compared to George Moss's introductions, uh, they tend to not be as, uh, condemning of the texts in certain ways, um, as your introductions. And I'm just curious if, 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 if I'm right in seeing it that way, uh, and if so, uh, why it was that you chose to, um, um, you know, present the, uh, the, the texts in, in that fashion? Well, I think there was a sense uh, among both of us as editors, but also on the part of the press, that it was necessary to make clear that this was not only a scholarly work, but a work with moral um, with a moral dimension, and that it was certain that it was certainly not uh, extolling the virtues of Nazism, but also pointing to the pointing explicitly to the dangers and the threat that this kind of ideology uh, carries with it. And so, I think you're right. I think we did try to make explicit that this was a book about a criminal genocidal regime, and that we were demonstrating how this regime worked. And we encourage students to think about it in that way rather than to immerse themselves in the ideology without thinking about what its ultimate function was. Yeah, and, I, and I, as somebody who teaches in a, in a provincial university in Northern Ireland, uh, you know, I certainly understand the need to do that because uh, when I teach German history, I, I often ask the students in the very first uh, lecture, I say, so how many of you own a copy of Mein Kampf? Uh, and <laughs> I only learned to ask that question because students told me they had it. And, uh, you know, inevitably, two, three, four raise their hands, usually usually men, uh, and, and I ask them why they have it, and they say, well, I just wanted to know what Hitler thought, you know, but it's, right. it, it, there's, that, there's that sort of, uh, you know, fascination um, and a kind of fetishization of the Nazis that uh, a lot of students bring to, to it. So, it, you know, in that sense, I, I certainly um, understand why it's important maybe to preface uh, these texts um, with with that type of uh, um, you know interpretation or warning or something. I hope we didn't do too much of that, but we did we did do that very self consciously at certain points because we felt that it was necessary to create this distance between the reader and the text rather than to allow the reader just to simply absorb the text or be absorbed into the text. Yeah, no, I, I, I you know I, I definitely I saw it at several points. Uh, and uh, but it, it really, as I was mentioning, you know, when I opened the book, I was uh, I was feeling the heaviness of the period, and those those introductions spoke to that for me. So, um, you know, so that I, I as a reader, I, I, I wasn't uh, bothered certainly by that. But it, you know, it definitely does. Uh, there is a contrast between the way that you introduce texts and say the other collections we've mentioned introduces texts in that regard. Right, I think that's right. Um, also connected to this, perhaps, uh, I think you mentioned this introduction and I don't remember the wording exactly, but you know, you, you chose not to, uh, bring in, uh, some of those voices that we mentioned at the beginning from, from the Weimar source book, maybe Adorno, uh, Hannah Arendt, uh, figures that are in exile, but nonetheless, let's say processing the regime, uh, certainly, uh, writing critically about it. Why is it that those voices, uh, you know, they appear a bit, um, but you, you chose not to highlight them. Well, I think that the, re- the most obvious reason is that if we included text by exiles, which we thought about, have a section on the exile voices, would have expanded the book to twice its size. Mm-hmm. And the book was already a thousand pages, and we were way over our limit. 
So we didn't do that. And we, we did include, as you mentioned, some voices. Thomas Mann appears three times. Leon Feuchtwanger appears. Manfred Georg, who was the editor of the Aufbau, the exile newspaper in New York, appears a couple of times. But we wanted to have exile voices that responded or intervened to, in specific contexts. So Thomas Mann's response to Goebbels' speech, Feuchtwanger's response to the Aryanization, quote-unquote, of his apartment, Manfred Georg's response to Nazi writing about American film, so, thing, so that these responses would not be sort of general reflections on anti-Semitism or theoretical statements about anti-Semitism or racism or Nazism, but specific responses, specific interventions in, in, in debates. We have, for example, uh, the very uh, largely unknown but very important, a selection from the largely unknown but very important book on Nazi propaganda written by Willy Munzenberg in Paris. Willy, Willy Munzenberg was the sort of chief communist anti-fascist uh, uh, in Europe at that time, also in exile. We have something from Wilhelm Reich's Mass Psychology of Fascism. So things that were influential in the period was, would be the criteria, rather than things that we now think are important, but were not important or considered to be important then. For example, Hannah Arendt, for all the virtues of what she wrote after 1945, really was un completely unknown before 1945. And that was that was another important criteria. Mm -hmm. um, so, just to, as a sort of, I guess, I'm coming towards the end of, of my questions. But uh, uh, in the process of, of editing this book, collecting the sources, reading through, I mean, uh, you've obviously worked through an enormous amount of material um, mm -hmm. that that most historians don't go through that amount of, uh, especially uh, probably uh, senior historians go through that amount of source material sifting through um, what, how did it change what did, what did you learn I suppose uh, in the course of putting together the book uh, um, any sort of final insight something maybe documents that you found revealing that you didn't know earlier or uh, you know how did how did it change your your thesis going in well let me say that the, the thing that I found most surprising that I learned editing this book and going through the various collections of sources and documents that we used and archives that we used in finding these materials is the extent to which the regime was self-conscious about measuring and monitoring and keeping track of the responses to its propaganda efforts. Hmm. We have, for example, two documents, uh, uh, two uh, documents uh, reporting the results of survey research on radio listeners. We have an extraordinary document, uh, an archival document, uh, asking women how they spent their free time uh, while they were members of the Strength Through Joy movement, what they did during their free time, which is very, very revealing in ways that uh, one would not expect. There's an extraordinary document called Good and Bad Posters, which mm -hmm. is a critical reading of two posters used in the elections of 1932, demonstrating the weaknesses of one of the posters and the successes of the other. So that we were, we were unprepared, I think, for the extent to which the regime monitored its own efforts and was conscious of its own political propaganda techniques. That, that I think, needs to be said. I think also we were surprised, maybe not so surprised, but certainly surprised to some extent by the range of expressions of the Nazi worldview, which we talked about. Mm -hmm. The range of mentalities, the dissonances, the way that the party did not prescribe ideological coherence, preferring instead incoherence to ideological coherence. That sort of goes against the grain of thinking about Nazism, which always is imagined to be ideologically coherent or at least promoting ideological coherence. It goes against the sort of idea of Hannah Arendt and many others that totalitarianism was about creating a kind of ideological or historical uh, uh, consistency. She uses the word consistency a lot. And we found that uh, the Nazi regime was anything but consistent, more, most often inconsistent, and they preferred it that way. 
So I think those are two things that we learned uh, and changed our understanding of the of the epoch. Very good. Um, I, I, before I ask you a sort of final question uh, about what you're working on now, is there anything else you'd like to tell listeners uh, about the book? Well, yeah, there's one other thing we haven't discussed. Um, there's a big difference, I think, in the book between the way that we treat the Nazi regime and the way that we treat uh, the victims of Nazism. We do have a lot of material on gays, the handicapped, asocials, uh, Sinti, uh, that, that, that should be mentioned. And also that the Holocaust section of the book shifts gears dramatically in the sense that there we have a rather substantial number of texts by victims rather than by perpetrators. Uh, that sense, uh, that section of the book deals with some of the major quandaries, and important for students, major quandaries in dealing with the Holocaust. For example, the role of the Jewish councils and the famous debate about whether the Jewish councils contributed to or didn't contribute to the destruction of their own people. And we, we included many, many Jewish voices, diary uh, excerpts and and statements that would allow students to discuss the issues involved in assessing the circumstances and limits of choice available to the Jewish councils in Eastern Europe. Yeah, there were a lot of, uh, those, especially that section was uh, very, uh, you know, text I hadn't seen before and, and certainly, uh, you know, extremely uh, moving, disturbing um, testimonies uh, from the, I think there's one with a, uh, is it a, a, a Czech, uh, um, prisoner or, or a guard uh, or both um, that you include there. Yes, that's right. Um, so, well, uh, I think we've we've uh, managed to touch on some some of the, the important issues uh, in this. You know, as I said, just very impressive um, book that that is going to be really tremendously useful for an, an entire community of, of historians and scholars. I'm sure for many years. So, congratulations on that um, achievement. Thank you. Um, the, the sort of final question we like to ask uh, in these podcasts is just uh, to have uh, scholars say something about what they're now working on now, and and what the you know either what has has come out of this book in terms of new research, or perhaps you're working on something completely different. Well, I think what I'm doing now uh, certainly relates to this book and comes out of this book to some extent, but is also moving in a slightly different direction. What I'm doing is um, trying to write a book about how historical concepts are formed in the 20th century and what concepts are unique to the 20th century. I mean, political uh, concepts and uh, the concepts that I've chosen are uh, genocide, totalitarianism and total war. And I'm trying to write about not just when and how these concepts were uh, invented, so to speak, but why they were invented and what the conditions are under which they were invented. And also, lastly, how they were different from concepts invented in the 19th century, concepts like progress, revolution, dialectic. How do 20th century concepts differ? What is the? How do they embody the... Um, how, how do they embody the uh, the events of the 20th century in the in the very formation of those concepts? That sounds like a fascinating book. I mean, my, myself, I'm, I'm interested in the future of uh, working on a book on just one term, Weltanschauung, <laughs> uh, which which really does right. span the 19th and the 20th centuries. Right. Um, but uh, those those sound uh, those three sound like uh, uh, fascinating topics, especially if you are comparing them to the 19th century conceptions of, of history. Well, uh, you know, we look forward to that, and um, perhaps we can have another interview at some point uh, later later on uh, when that, that project is finished. Okay, well, Anson, thanks so much for the time and the uh, thoughts. And thank you for having me. 